don't be afraid to go in that direction and add value with little to no compensation to get yourself ahead so you can make a lot more later. Before we get into it, I want to introduce you to Groundbreaker, today's sponsor and partner. They are an all-in-one suite of tools for small to medium-sized real estate syndicators. They've got a special focus on real estate syndicators with 1 million to 100 million assets under management. They help you increase productivity and investor satisfaction by automating fundraising, reporting, and investor relations through elegant and powerful workflows built by syndicators for syndicators. Groundbreaker will help you scale your business without the need to scale your overhead. So they're going to help reduce your costs because of the admin team that won't need to be as large. And they're going to help you reduce your risk of data breach because of the security systems that they have in place. They'll help you increase your revenue by growing your assets under management because you're going to be allowed to focus on the things that are most important, like business growth and operations, not those administrative logistics. And ultimately, they're going to help you elevate your company's brand and professionalism and investor experience because your investors are going to enjoy having this platform with all their information versus however you're currently doing it. Three things specifically about Groundbreaker I personally like. One, super easy to use from an investor standpoint and from a general partner standpoint. Two, it allows investors and general partners to fund electronically, meaning that a limited partner can complete their entire subscription and funding cycle without leaving the platform. And on the general partnership side, for distributions, you can set it up so that you can trigger bulk ACH payments within the platform. And then last thing I really like about Groundbreaker is it's, well, it's cost effective. It's healthy to the bottom line. Their basic plan allows sponsors to sign up for as little as $100 per month with no limits on deals or investors. And you can read all about the pricing on their website. Speaking of their website, it is groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe, J-O-E. And when you go there, groundbreaker.co forward slash J-O-E you're going to get access to a pitch deck that the Groundbreaker team created so that you have a template should you want to use that and customize it for your own deal. So go to groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast where we only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff. What's us today? Garrett Lynch. How you doing, Garrett? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Joe. Well, it's my pleasure and glad you're doing great. A little bit about Garrett. He's a full-time real estate syndicator. He's got nine years of real estate experience. He sold his portfolio in 2016 which consisted of 3,400 units and 26 properties, and he currently owns 500 units based in Scottsdale, Arizona. So with that being said, Garrett, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Yeah, I started in this business about 10 years ago, and I started out kind of wholesaling deals in the south side of Chicago, so some of the rougher areas of Chicago, the roughest in the, in the country probably. And after that, I realized that that wasn't really a sustainable model. I decided to go work for a guy who had a thousand apartments and in doing so kind of learned the bigger business and realized that we had resources to go and start syndicating deals. So myself and my best friend at the time 
started a company in 2013. We started buying out portfolios of D-class properties, mostly Section 8 stuff, and then ended up converting into some larger multifamily deals. We started with like a 50 unit, then we did a 70, 120, and then jumped to a 380 unit deal. And then after that, we're like, oh, we can buy these bigger deals. Let's just continue doing that because it seems to work a lot better. And so we scaled that operation about three and a half years to about 3,400 apartments, self-managed the entire portfolio. We got screwed over by a couple management companies early on in the beginning and decided to just start our own without really knowing anything about it. <laughs> so lots of lessons in doing that. But at the end of 2016, I got bought out of my part of the portfolio. And then since transition that way, I went on a little bit of a hiatus for a couple of years, traveled around the world for a bit. And then I came back and found Michael Blanc and the Nighthawk team. They had a portfolio of about 800 units. And so I came on board with them as a partner to help them scale the business and add value to their operation. So that's where I'm at now. And we had our last closing actually in December of 2019. We closed on a 276-unit deal in Huntsville, about an $18.1 million purchase price. So we're still looking for deals even in this crazy COVID era. And our typical deal range is anywhere from eight to about $35 million. And we target the Southeast region. Okay. Well, we got a lot to unpack here and thanks for sharing that. So let's talk about, in no order of importance, but let's talk about in 2016, you got bought out of your portfolio. So does that mean you all did not sell the properties, but you personally were bought out of your ownership in those properties? Yes. Just to be candid, it was a partnership fallout. So the partnership didn't work. We got to level it. So there's a lot of things involved in that, but it just didn't work out at that. When we got to that point, things changed and some things happened. And so we had to negotiate a buyout. So it was mostly done through lawyers and all that stuff, but we essentially find the value of every property that we owned. And then I had a, a partner, my partner basically cashed me out. Mm-hmm. And so the upside is I probably was very lucrative. Obviously I made a decent amount of money on that buyout. So it's all the equity that I was owned. They basically paid me in cash for what we had to arrive at the values of each property and I got paid out on that. The downside is that I had to pay a lot of taxes on that because I wasn't able to 1031 any of those mm-hmm. and I had to pay out on depreciation recapture. So it was an interesting experience. I had to kind of do that in order to get to the level that I'm at now for sure. And it was a very challenging time, but I'm glad I went through it and I'm back here now. On the buyout, when you're finding the value of all the properties and then here's the percent I own and this is the value. Is there a discount placed on what your value is since you're getting cash and it's not the value is the value if someone pays you for it? I did take about a 15% haircut, but it was more like in the negotiating process. So it actually took eight months to agree on the pricing of every deal. So we like went through every deal and basically, what is this worth? What is this worth on each one? And then what do we pay for it? And then what is my percentage ownership in that? And I owned a quarter of the GP on everything. So we had to go in, basically figure out what that looked like in cash. And then I took a natural discount because we were just trying to arrive at the pricing and how it all worked together. We had 25 assets that we had to basically (laughs) agree on. So I couldn't just sell all of them. It would have taken forever. And so 
we just had to do our best at it and it moved through surprisingly fast considering all we had to go through and so once we arrived at that number that was just what happened and how do you determine the value of the property we just went and underwrote it as if we were going to sell it in the market we got brokers opinions on each one we came up with a big spreadsheet of every single asset the mortgage how much equity was in there and then we just had to come up with the number and i had them throw out the first number i always do that because of sales strategy yep just to see kind of where they thought things were falling. And then if I had backup on any deals from broker opinion or anything like that as to where things would trade, I would include that as well. We underwrote an exit broker fee, which didn't need to do that. I think part of the negotiation, we did it where it was like 2% on any deal that was over 5 million and then 3% on a deal that was under that or something. I can't remember exact details, but it was like a tiered brokerage percentage that went into it as, as we were kind of like, simulating a sale essentially yep. on each deal. That's interesting. I'm grateful that you're sharing this. It's something that isn't talked about a lot and it's something that when someone does come across this situation, what you're saying now is incredibly valuable to those parties who are trying to navigate the buyout structure. So th yeah, thank you for sharing this. Of course. Another way to kind of just avoid that is you can get buy sell insurance in place, which I think everyone should probably have at a certain point. There's a lot of things that can happen in partnerships. Let's say your partner somehow, God forbid, passes away and then their spouse is now your partner and you hate their spouse. <laughs> you know, like so having that kind of insurance in place I think can be helpful. Mm -hmm. So knowing what you know now with a type of partnership that doesn't work, and I know you're currently in a partnership what are some lessons that you learned from the partnership that did not work? Maybe yeah. I shouldn't say it didn't work because clearly you all had success. I think it was actually Trevor McGregor that told me this, that most partnerships last three to seven years. And I think the biggest thing that we didn't anticipate, we went into it, we were friends. I was like the deal finding guy. And then my partner was more like the equity and accounting and finance guy. And I was like the operation guy too. So we did offset each other. That was good, I think, in the partnership. And I think what, what you don't want to do going into a partnership is just go into it with your friends unless they have a role that either complements you. You don't want to do the same thing. You want to have different roles, obviously, in a partnership. But I've seen a lot of people that just structure deals and it's all messed up. It's a very tricky thing. It's hard to navigate. And I think that we were very close friends, plus we did offset each other, but you have to be kind of realistic about how things are going to, to change and evolve, and you have to be able to pivot as they do. And I, I think that we were lacking in that department. For example? Um, for example, we were taking on employees as we got larger, but some of the roles that, that myself or my partner should have maybe taken on. We didn't really outline how we were going to do those in lieu of the new employees that we were able to take on. And so what happened was maybe some of the roles that I filled before, I was wearing many, many hats. I didn't wear as many hats. And so maybe I was perceived as being less valuable and really maybe we should have pivoted into something else. That could have been part of it and vice versa with my partner in, in some respects. So having clarity around at what level and what roles and responsibilities you're going to take on even with having employees. I think people get into partnerships because they can't afford to pay employees. That's one reason, right? So they partner with someone and then they split it up. And then as you grow, you can afford to pay employees to do those roles. 
And that's kind of where you want to be. But keeping an open mind to structural changes as things progress, I think, is what we didn't do. And that's something that you definitely need to look at as things pivot. You know, maybe there's a partner that just doesn't serve the partnership anymore as things progress. So having an exit plan in place is important in that respect. It's like, okay, well, if things go sideways, we hate each other, whatever, what is that going to look like? And I think the easiest way to protect yourself is just keep things on a deal by deal basis. Personally, I think if we had done it more like that, it would have allowed for us to pivot in the proper way and things maybe it would have worked out better. So now let's switch gears and talk about, you said earlier, you got screwed over by management companies. So let's talk about yeah. that. Uh, yeah. Please tell us. So first off, it's impossible to have D-class properties run by a third-party company. There's too many moving parts. So I think that was part of it for us. D-class, nobody's really that we know are probably doing them right now, but maybe a few, but that's where we started. And so the property management companies, there's really two types. There's like bigger assets. They're running your property for 3% or whatever it is. Plus you pay the payroll, but we had a portfolio. The other side is they're going to charge you 10%. And basically that kind of includes payroll to some degree. And they're managing multiple sites. And so you're fighting for their attention in a lot of ways. So we had probably got screwed over by four different companies. The first time they said they were going to do straight pass-throughs on our expenses. So if there was like a uh, you know, lock that needed to be changed by a third-party company or something silly like that, we were just supposed to absorb that exact cost. Well, they were taking the invoices and marking about 20% and changing them, actually committing fraud and then passing them through to us. And wow. they were keeping the 20% difference. Yeah. So we caught that and then we had a How? huge issue. They made a mistake on one of them. They left both numbers on the invoice. They didn't doctor it properly and we caught it. <laughs> and we went in and did, yeah, so stupid. So they didn't doctor it correctly. We went in and then we, we started auditing everything. And we actually called the companies directly, a bunch of them, and we found that their actual invoices were less than the ones that we were getting from the management company. Mm -hmm. So that was a huge exit and departure from that company. That was like the first one. And we had just one company that was actually finding all the vendors in the market and creating their own LLC and then doing something similar with billing us through their construction company or whatever, using the vendors that they found in the market. And similarly, they said it was going to be like a pass-through situation, but they just, all they did was find the vendors and then use them almost as subs under their LLC company. And then they marked everything up. So we found that out too. <laughs> so it, wow. it was just really silly stuff that was going on and we just had, I had it right away we had a bad taste in our mouth with third-party management we wanted more control those are two different groups two different groups similar issues they just did it in different ways and mm -hmm. both groups we thought were pretty reputable which mm -hmm. was interesting yeah what made you think that initially just who they were affiliated with in the marketplace one of the groups was affiliated with auction.com. We're like, what? Like, how, how did this happen with these guys? You know, so maybe we didn't do enough digging or enough homework in the beginning. And I'm certainly not having that experience with our management companies now. So I'm not as afraid of them. But in, at the time, we were just like, Let, we can't even deal with these third party mm -hmm. companies. Silly stuff. So management companies don't really make that much money unless they figure out ways to make money. And so <laughs> like that, that you know, the, <laughs> For example, this one company wanted to charge us like 5% instead of the 10%. And they're like, oh, we'll, we'll be nice. We'll just charge you 5% or something. Like, okay. 
And but they were dinging us, nickel and diming us on every single thing that happens. Like they'd go in a, a Section 8 inspection, they'd fail it, they'd charge us 200 bucks, then they'd have to do three more, charge us 200 bucks every time. Any maintenance that they're charging us, 250 bucks. So they're made, now they're making money on piecemeal stuff in addition to the 5%. So it ended up at, adding up to like 25%. <laughs> when you added it all up. And it was just like, they'll leave things off where they're just like, oh, well, Oh, landscape. Their contracts are super simple sometimes, which is problematic. And they don't tell you, oh, this 10% includes this or whatever that or whatever. It was just kind of whatever they made up when you got in under the, in the situation. And so those are just learning lessons in the beginning. And it's obviously much tougher with a property management company when you're not doing large multifamily deals, but a lot of people are still doing 50 units, 20 units, and they can run into the same issues. If there are questions, you could ask a property management company to attempt to mitigate that from taking place if you do have deep properties. Yeah, I would dissect their entire operation and I'd be like, listen, there's two ways that property managers make money on the individual fees for visiting the site. Tell me about how that works and then tell me what's included in your actual percentage fee. What do I get with that? Does that include landscaping? Does that include, you know, does it include, you know, unlimited access to your maintenance guy? Like, how do those differ? And what can I expect as far as charges go? And then I would try to get a redacted version of statements that they send out to other groups that they work with. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, get references. What I do now, actually, if I'm trying to vet a third-party management company, instead of getting their references directly from them, I'll go on their website and find the properties that they manage and I'll just basically point at five that are similar to mine and I'll, just, I'll ask for those references mm. because you know you're going to get the best references if you just ask them for references which can be helpful because you can dig into those references but mm. you want to just get like unbiased random references so if they can't provide it then that's a red flag yeah good stuff that's a great tip just going on their website and then finding the properties that are similar whether it's the area or class and then asking the management company to get you in touch with those owners so you can talk to them about their experience yeah and i just did it with our company in nashville and they literally passed with flying colors i checked i think six references and a random just point at on their website and i checked and all six gave great reviews and we're having a great experience with them right now imagine that that's a really good tip thank you for sharing that of course so you don't buy D-Class anymore? No. Why not? D-Class is like low-hanging fruit. On paper, the returns look really attractive. But when you get into them, there's a lot of unforeseen deferred maintenance issues typically that come with the tenant base that you're working with. So we had a portfolio of 300 apartments, 150 of them in the beginning were just market rate. And half were, so 150 were Section 8 around that. We had to convert the entire portfolio to Section 8 because people were losing their jobs so often on the other 150 market rate. Even good tenants that had a good, decent track record, they just lose their jobs. It's typically more transient of an area. And so you get that kind of turnover. People don't care about credit. You can't screen people properly. Credit's just non-existent. So... You're dealing with a whole slew of issues. What area, market, and submarket? Southside was... of Chicago. I was in Southside Chicago. Okay, thank you. So over there, unemployment's really high, and people just 
switch jobs like it's nothing. And so we had that experience. So the only way we were going to get paid is if we switched it to Section 8. And then when we got into Section 8, it's very tough to figure out who's a good and a bad tenant, even if you get Section 8. So there's those challenges in that too. Like imagine if you rehab an entire house or an entire two or three flat, and then you put in the tenants and within a couple of weeks or a couple of months, they destroy oh, the no. entire property. We saw that all the time. So when you spend all this money to rehab it, now you got to rehab it again when they move out or you fail an inspection because they didn't get rehab properly or because they destroyed something. And if you fail your inspections, you can go to abatement and you're not getting paid. So there's a lot of issues like that. And then you're also the employees that you're dealing with in those areas and those types of asset classes mirror the tenants. So you're not getting the highest quality labor either. So this is most distinct thing I remember. I had a staff, 10 guys that were going around running these properties of the 300 units. And I was like, you know, I think some of these people are not working right now. They're not doing their job properly. So <laughs> I fired eight of the 10 people. I, I kept two and the properties ran exactly the same as we had said. How'd you find out that eight out of 10 were not doing anything? I had a hunch because tasks were not getting completed on time that should have. I would just pop in randomly and to go visit them. I'd figure out where they were and I'd just do random site visits and see what they had going on. And sometimes they weren't doing anything or they were sitting around. So eventually I just kind of, it was more of a gut thing than anything. And I was like, you know what? I can hire these guys back if I'm really messing up now, but my payroll is insane. I'm breaking even or losing money. I don't really have a choice and, and we, let's just see what happens. And so I just did it. And then sure enough, <laughs> <laughs> Ran exactly the same. Two guys could run the thing. It was just nuts. <laughs> it was like a snowball thing because we thought we we're like, oh, we're not running properly. If these aren't working, we need to hire mm -hmm. someone else. Oh, we need someone else. We just kept doing it. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> because those guys were training each other. <laughs> so here's what we do from 8 to 6 p.m. We go in this little corner over here and have a little siesta. <laughs> yeah. So it was, just, it was just foolishness on our end. But any kind of high crime area or anything like that, you're dealing with a whole different set of rules and it's very tough to navigate it because it's, there's so many tasks that you have to complete that you may not deal with on a B-class property. And it's just based around the kind of tenant base and, and area that you're in. A lot of variables that, that are unseen. And then there are also very little equity. It's, of course, a lot of your years in Chernow, but it's like, you know, you have the lowest amount of equity in D-class deals, and then A can be the highest, potentially, right? Like, so it's, it's kind of an inverse on that. But the D-class has the highest cash flow potential, which is somewhat true, but you still got to sell out of it at some point. And so Someone's when it came time to sell it. out of these things, <laughs> who wants to buy this garbage that somebody, the, the Section 8 tenant left, destroyed the place? You're not selling that thing for more than what you paid for it at that point, you know? So... The basis rose up way too high, and then when it came time to exit, I think we, we lost money on a lot of them. Taking a step back, and it might be something that we just talked about, but what is your best real estate investing advice ever? My best real estate investing advice ever, I would say, is to understand that this is a partnership business, and you need to figure out if you want to enter into this business, where you can add value to someone else's operation and then just do it 
for little to nothing in the beginning, just add the value and do as much as you can. So you have to figure out what they need and bring it to them and don't expect compensation for it in the beginning. If you can just do something to learn, the skill and the knowledge is way more important than actually making money in the beginning. And sometimes that's tough for people to understand, but if your skill and knowledge level aren't there, you're not gonna be getting paid anyway. So for me, I started out making very little in the beginning because I didn't know anything. And I was just wasn't that valuable to the marketplace. And it took time and surrounding myself with the other like-minded people and trying to add value to their operation consistently to get to the level where I was actually making a decent amount of money. So I would say, don't be afraid to go in that direction and add value with little to no compensation to get yourself ahead so you can make a lot more later. We're going to do a lightning round. You ready for the best ever lightning round? Yep. Let's do it. First quick word from our best ever partners. Groundbreaker helps you increase productivity and investor satisfaction by automating fundraising, reporting, and investor relations through elegant and powerful workflows built by syndicators for syndicators. Go to groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe. That's groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe to get a free deal pitch deck template. When it's Friday at 4.30 p.m., it's time for Entrepreneur Drinks Podcast, which is co-produced by Joint Ops Properties and Discount Property Investors. Join their end-of-the-work-week session as they tackle problems facing entrepreneurs. Listen and subscribe at entrepreneurdrinks.com. That's entrepreneurdrinks.com. What's the best-ever deal you've done? The best-ever deal I've done was a 360-unit deal I found completely off market in Columbus, Ohio. I think we bought it for $8 million and in about a year it was worth close to 15 What's a mistake you've made on a transaction that we haven't talked about already? A mistake I made was we went for a loan. We were going to close the deal with Fannie debt and we didn't put a stipulation of the contract that they had to show 90% occupancy. So the seller decided to drop their pants on the deal and just basically let it go. So the occupancy fell from 95% to 88% basically in a couple of weeks. And that didn't meet the lender's criteria. And so I didn't have anything in the contract to protect us from that. And our money had gone hard at that point. So learning from that, obviously you want to put some kind of language in there to protect you if you're going after debt that requires a certain occupancy. How can the best ever listeners learn more about what you're doing? You can actually shoot me a text or a call, 630 630- or email me at Garrett, that's G-A-R-R-E-T-T, at NighthawkEquity.com. Sneaky things property management companies can do. So thank you for identifying some things that have happened to you so we can look out for them, as well as how to approach partnerships. And when a partnership does go not as planned, how to navigate the buyout and getting into the specifics. Great stuff there, as well as talking about D-class property. So thanks for being on the show. Hope you have a best ever day. Talk to you again soon. Thanks so much, Joe.